Listener Production. G'day, it's Jan Fran here. I want you to picture this scenario. You're a uni student, you have a major assignment due tomorrow and you are running behind. You need to focus, so you decide to take a study drug like modafinil because your mate has told you that it's helped them focus. So these drugs, Ritalin, modafinil and dextroamphetamine, also known as Adderall, they're often used to treat ADHD, but they are misused by people who think that they'll make them sharper and more productive. The Therapeutic Goods Administration says they're particularly popular among students, shift workers and people working in high-stress jobs. But there is a massive but here. It turns out if you don't have ADHD and you are hoping for a brain boost, taking these drugs might actually have the opposite effect. That's according to new research from the University of Melbourne. These drugs that just dump more dopamine into your brain are more likely to cause problems than to help out. The metaphor I use, it's like putting more petrol into your car and expecting it to go faster. Like The system doesn't work like that. Yep, sure does not. We're going to get into what the research says in just a bit. But first, here are the headlines for today. It is Friday, the 23rd of June. I'm joined by Tom Dilley. So the US Coast Guard has just given a press conference with tragic news. Parts of the Titan submarine have been found on the ocean floor near the Titanic wreckage, which shows that the sub imploded and the five people on board are dead. This morning, an ROV or remote operated vehicle from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. So this is the Rear Admiral John Mauger from the US Coast Guard giving this press conference. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. Yeah, this is absolutely tragic news for the families. And this story is just unfolding. So the US Coast Guard is only spoke just moments ago. Um, he was asked whether it was possible as well, Tom, to recover the bodies. He didn't sound very optimistic answering that question, saying that it was an incredibly unforgiving environment down there. You have to remember the Titanic wreckage is about four kilometres underwater they believe that the implosion most likely happened four days ago after the sub lost contact, which means, and I know we, we reported on this story that there was some banging sounds that were heard. And I think people thought mm. that maybe it was banging sounds from those within the sub, letting people know that they were there. Looks like those two things are not connected at all. Mm. And information's coming out about the company um, refusing external testing on their submersibles because they said at the time, and this was 2019, that it would slow down their rapid innovation. So I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on the company and the decision-making that went into this voyage. And the opposition leader is demanding that the federal government abandon the voice to parliament referendum if it thinks it won't be successful. And it should be incumbent on any Prime Minister to provide the leadership to prevent that from taking place. That was Peter Dutton there. He says that a failed referendum would be a setback for Indigenous reconciliation. 
Uh, he has told Parliament that recent polls show that there is just not enough support for The Voice. He's both right and not quite right on that because polling is mixed. Um, there are some polls that show that support has slipped. There are others that show that it's steady. And we've got to bear in mind these polls happen all the time and they'll probably keep changing even more as we approach that referendum date before the end of the year as well. Yeah, so Anthony Albanese has hit back at Dutton for um, this idea and said he is devoid of empathy. Yeah, it is slightly confusing messaging from Dutton, I have to say, given that earlier this week his party supported the legislation that's going to establish the referendum. But I just want to add, I know we've, we've, I've mentioned this stat on the potty before, bipartisanship for referendums is really important. We've had 44 referendums um, in the past, only eight have been successful, and they're the ones that have had the support of, at the very least, the two major parties. So that's a thing to bear in mind. Yeah, that ship has sailed. Um, bipartisanship, we thought it might happen this time around, but as soon as the year kicked off and this debate began, uh, it became very clear that Peter Dutton was heading a different direction. And now they basically, every sitting week, so we're just at the end of a second sitting week before the winter break, they're arguing about it pretty much every day. Mm. Twitter has been hit with a legal notice from our e-safety commissioner for allegedly not doing enough to tackle hate. So it's been given 28 days to show steps um, that it's taken to address child sexual exploitation and abuse, extortion and promotion of harmful content or face fines starting with $700,000 a day. Mm, yeah, I don't know how much Twitter cares about this. They've not commented and anyone that approaches them from the media is met with a poo emoji. Um, so I don't think they're particularly interested in hearing media queries. But the eSafety Commissioner says that she's had more complaints about Twitter and about hate and abuse on Twitter in the last 12 months than any other platform and um, reckons she's seen a massive rise since Elon Musk took over as well. Yeah, I mean, it was already a pretty toxic place, but it seems to have gotten worse. The other interesting news on Elon Musk is that he's offered to settle his scores with Mark Zuckerberg in a cage fight. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Are you having problems with a with a rival business competitor? Why not punch him in the face in a cage? That makes complete sense to me. Yeah, so although... Good. He tweeted that he would be up for a cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Zuckerberg said, send me the location, mate. Let me know when it's on. So he's down too. Yeah. I mean, who would you back in the fight, Jen? I would get as far away from that fight as I possibly could and never think about it again. But the best outcome would be that they just both beat the shit out of each other. (laughs) <laughs> I would I would get in the front row. I think that would be a really close fight. But um I know sort of Zuckerberg from a distance looks um, you know, maybe not as big and a bit even nerdier than Elon Musk, but he's actually a bit of an outdoorsy type Zuckerberg. And I think, you know, underneath those turtlenecks or whatever he wears, I reckon he's he's packing a bit of strength. So he's also a fair bit younger. I put my money mm, on his Well, he's a jujitsu champion. I don't know if many people know this oh. about Mark Zuckerberg, but he has uh, trained in jujitsu and he's won a number of competitions. So, mm. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe he's there got go. some, something up his sleeve or something inside his hoodie. Not that I want to think about that any further. <laughs> 
It's not just teenagers and young people feeling the pain of Taylor Swift's snub of Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide in her tour, um, but the pollies are feeling the pain as well. Sports Minister Annika Wells and Queensland MP Andrew Wallace have voiced their disappointment as well. Taylor, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, I'll get down on my knees if I have to, please come to Queensland. Yeah, so he's from Queensland, obviously, but a Perth MP, Patrick Gorman, has said it's even worse for them because people in Queensland can drive to Sydney, but people in WA can't do a three-day drive to come and see Taylor Swift. So um, do you think she'll listen, Mm. Jan? I, I... I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't think so. She's already announced that she's stopping in Oz in February just for five nights and she'll only be stopping in Sydney and Melbourne. And I did see the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, looking very smug about Sydney being one of the cities that Taylor Swift stops at. And he was talking about, somebody asked him a question about Brisbane being disappointed and <laughs> he didn't seem too sad about that. So I don't know, maybe, maybe if the other states kick up enough of a stink, she'll, she'll listen, but not holding my breath. Well, Brisbane's doing all right. They're getting the women's soccer world cup and also the Olympics up ahead. So, you know, they're doing all right. Yeah, you're doing all right. All right. Tom, you're out of here. Up next, I'm talking about smart drugs that might not be as smart as you think. talking so-called smart drugs, the pharmaceuticals that people misuse to supposedly help them feel sharper and more alert. Now, I say supposedly because new research shows that taking these drugs when you are not supposed to might not have that desired effect at all. In fact, it may make you less productive. Dr. Elizabeth Bowman is a neuroscientist from the Centre for Brain, Mind and Markets at Melbourne Uni, and she is the one who led this study. She joins us now. Dr. Bowman, welcome to the briefing. Let's talk about some of these smart drugs that some people might know as Ritalin or Modafinil or something called dextroamphetamine, which is found in Adderall. What do these drugs treat and how do they do it? Well, they've been used as part of treatment for ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, for many years. But they also have a reputation because they're widely prescribed for disorders of attention that if people who don't have ADHD take them, they might give you even better than normal attention or focus. And so people take them to try to enhance their study or their, their work productivity. The main effect in the brain is they increase the amount of one particular neurotransmitter called dopamine. So they make the cells in your brain release more dopamine and some of them also make it so that the dopamine hangs around in the cells or between the cells longer. There are a couple other sort of small effects, but yeah, mostly it's a dopamine story. Previous studies have found that people with ADHD are likely to have a different kind of dopamine sort of sensitivity or different like lower amounts of dopamine or dopamine tuning would be different in the brain. And we hear anecdotally people who with ADHD taking these these drugs which are stimulants uh, often find that they get calmer, they get less fidgety and everything sort of quietens down. But with people who don't have ADHD and take them, they can get the opposite effect. They feel much more active much more jittery and fidgety and and talkative and so on. So 
Yeah, it seems that people with ADHD have brains that work a bit differently when it comes to dopamine. Okay, so what do we understand about the way that these drugs are being misused? Surveys have been done of people who are in particularly competitive workplaces or competitive universities. Uh, There's been surveys of surgeons. The scientific journal Nature did a big survey a few years ago of scientists, people in like investment banking and these kind of competitive, cognitive kind of jobs. And of course, universities too. So there's been studies of medical students or of university students in general who, you know, everyone's trying to get an edge. Everyone's trying to try to be better than everyone else. So people will be willing to try a lot of things. But our study shows that it might not be having the effect that they want. Okay, where does this idea that these drugs are going to give people an edge come from, though? Well, they do help people who have ADHD to focus and to study. And when people who don't have ADHD take them, they might indeed feel more more motivated, maybe. They'll certainly keep you up all night. They'll mess with your sleep. So you, you hear lots of stories of people taking them to stay up all night and write an essay. But then you often hear stories that the, the, they read the essay the next day and it's gibberish or they try to sit down to focus on the essay and they end up cleaning the laundry for four hours instead of focusing on what they're meant to be focusing on. So, you know, people go, oh, I have to work, so I have to stay up all night to work. But the, the quality of what they may be producing, depending on what they're trying to do, is a different question. Okay. So I think people look and and say, oh, well, this helps people with ADHD and I need to stay up all all night. So I guess those two things mean that this drug will also work for me in a really positive way. But you've done a major study into this and found that might not necessarily be the case. So talk us through how you conducted this study, first of all. Okay. So our study was a double-blinded placebo-controlled trial. So we looked at methylphenidate, which is Ritalin, dextroamphetamine, which is in Adderall, modafinil, which is sold as provigil or motivigil, and placebo. So that's just a pill with like flour starch in it that does nothing. Mm. So everyone in our study did four sessions, four individual sessions, and at each session they would have got a pill with one of those different substances in it. But it's double-blinded means that on the day, the person giving the pill and the person taking the pill doesn't know which of those four options it is because you get expectation effects. There's lots of studies of you give somebody a a sugar pill and go, oh, oh, look out, it's a really strong drug, yeah, and then they'll have all kinds of experiences of, you know, they might feel completely off their face, but it's just because they expect to. So every session they get a pill, they don't know if they're getting an active pill or a placebo, and then they do these complex cognitive decision making problem-solving tasks that we get them to do. We think that they are more like the kinds of problems that you get in everyday situations. So previous literature has tested these Can you give me an example? Yeah. One task that we use a lot is called the knapsack task, which is, it's easy to explain, but mathematically it's really interesting. But um, the it's just, imagine if you have a bag and the bag has a weight limit. It will only hold 10 kilos or something like that. And then we present you with a number of items and each item has a weight and a value. So one item might weigh one kilo and be worth $2 and another item might weigh three kilos and be worth $10 and so on. And 
to solve this problem, you have to select items that will go into the bag so that you maximize the value of what's in the bag, but you don't go over the weight limit. So, right, okay. Yeah, but the only way to be 100% sure that you've gotten the optimal combination of items is to compute all possible combinations and then rank them and sort them. And we know humans can't do this in their head. They don't have that kind of memory. And these kinds of problems are ubiquitous in the world, like any time you have to find an optimal solution under a particular constraint. So even just going to the supermarket, if you've got $50, you have to go to the supermarket and you have to try to get the best bang for your buck from the $50. And there's 40,000 different possible items at the supermarket. So we're, we're looking at sort of what strategies that people can use to approach problems like this. And then we became interested in how these drugs might affect how people approach problems like this in people who don't have ADHD. Right. Yeah. And what did you find out in terms of how the drugs help or hinder uh, <laughs> people approaching problems like this? Well, that's the interesting thing because we found that particularly under methylphenidates or Ritalin or dextroamphetamine, so Adderall, they took much longer, they were taking much longer before they decided to submit a solution. We gave them a time limit before they could submit. They were trying many more combinations. So this is presented on a computer. So they they were clicking around, trying many, many more combinations. But the combinations they were trying were more random. We can measure the quality of the solutions that they were trying. And then in general, their performance in terms of was the solution that they were submitting, how close was it to the optimal solution or did they get the optimal solution, that score went down. And so particularly if you think about it in terms of productivity, so is all this extra time, extra effort, extra action, extra all these different more combinations that they're trying, is it paying off? No, it's not. So their performance measure went way down. And then mm, when we So in a way yeah. actually using these or misusing these drugs makes you less productive. Yeah, exactly. You might get motivated to try more things, but this is a kind of problem where that doesn't give you any more information about are you getting closer to the optimal answer. And we found that And people, did you find that for all the yeah. drugs that were given or was it just particular drugs that made people perform worse uh, versus other drugs? We found it for all three drugs, but the size of the effect was slightly different. So Ritalin had the biggest detrimental effect, followed by dextroamphetamine, then followed by modafinil. And those people who were particularly good at solving these problems with the placebo, so with no drugs, those guys who were really good at it, they had the largest drop in productivity with Ritalin and with dextroamphetamine. So they're the ones who who were most affected negatively, the ones who are particularly high performing. Mm. Oh, that's going to be really interesting to people who think that they're probably doing themselves a service by taking these drugs and turns out they might have the highest drop in productivity by taking them. As I said before, these drugs act on dopamine. And if you're already a high performing sort of person, we assume that you've already got a pretty well-tuned dopamine system in the first place. So these drugs that just dump more dopamine into your brain are more likely to cause problems than to help out. The metaphor I use, it's like putting more petrol into your car and expecting it to go faster. Like the system doesn't work like that. 
Okay. So for all the people who are out there stressed out, you know, the students that need to complete assignments or shift workers who want to make sure that they're alert in the middle of the night, if drugs aren't the silver bullet here, what should they be doing? Well, there's no magic silver bullet. You know, there's no shortcut. Everything has trade-offs, but in the cognition, in the performance literature, I hate to say it, but the thing that keeps coming up is sleep and exercise. They're the things that have the biggest effect. And it's really easy to say that, and it's much harder to do it, particularly in today's world. But um, sleep is just amazing for your brain, particularly if you're learning new things or, you know, trying to remember things and integrate those memories and understand new systems. And exercise, like regular exercise, is also really good because pills are very selective, very particular. They might work on one or two systems, but life and the brain is more complicated than that. These will definitely keep you awake at night, but uh, the quality of what you're producing is definitely a different question. Mm. All right, Dr. Elizabeth Bowman, thank you so much for joining us here on The Briefing. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was neuroscientist Elizabeth Bowman from the University of Melbourne there. And it seems that you just can't get around the fact that sleep and exercise are some of the best solutions to making sure that you're alert and productive. It's a grind and it's long term and it might not keep you awake at night in the same way that a drug will. But um, it seems like they're the goers. How boring. Okay, that is it for our Monday to Friday show. Saturday is rolling around and on Saturday we've got the weekend briefing with Jamila Risby. Ms. Jam, who have you got for us tomorrow? Hey team. This weekend I am chatting to, well, I'm chatting to one of our own. I'm chatting to Maz Compton, who is, of course, the host of the podcast Last Drinks and is also a co-host on hit New South Wales brekkie show, Maz and Maddie. We have a conversation that touches on Maz's love of music and how she got started in radio and and her passion for talking to some of the coolest music makers on the planet. But very quickly, our chat began to focus on what has become Maz's mission, which is helping people find and embrace their sober selves. Maz says her own drinking got to a not so good place about eight and a half years ago, and she made the decision to get sober. So we have unpacked that. And I think there are a lot of people who will find they learn something from what Matt has to say. Yeah, I think that's an episode that's going to hit a nerve with a lot of people. Thank you for that, Jam. And thank you for listening to The Briefing. And as always, a massive shout out to our producers who work tirelessly behind the scenes to bring you this podcast. I'm out. Catch you next week. Listener.